0: This is tonight's second Bible reading. Right, join me in Revelation 2, verses 7, and then we're going to skip and jump around a bit. So let's see who can keep up. Everyone there? Excellent. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 10. Do not fear. What you are about to suffer, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you would be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has not ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jumping ahead to verse 17. He who has not ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Twenty-five, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right, jump ahead to Revelation 3, verses 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verses 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that that is coming on the whole world to try try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Shall... Uh, sorry, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 5, verses 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of God.
1: Great. As, as always, it is a, an awesome privilege to bring you God's Word. Uh, we will be spending our time tonight in those passages that were read for us. Now, I must say that um, this sermon is, in a sense, a follow-up uh, from last week's sermon, so I do hope that uh, in the coming week, you will have time to go and listen to that sermon, and you realize uh, how even that very sermon uh, follows up on the two that David uh, led us through um, around two to three weeks ago. And I uh, will let you know now that there are particular things that we'll cover today, and there are some that we'll live out, because we still have a lot of time in Revelation, and those themes are, in a sense, uh, developed uh, for us to, to understand But a quick recap uh, for you, as you can see uh, on the notes there, you have a bit of a recap uh, statement to remind you of what we have spoken about, not so much in the last two weeks, but last week. And one of the things that was very clear to us as we spent our time together last week is that Jesus is sovereign. He is above. Uh, He is superernus. He's above all things is above all things and we saw that this authority or power he has is power that he has over all of life and all of history and we saw that he has this same power over death and to also bring justice or judgment And so for Christians who are overwhelmed by persecution or the brokenness of the world or suffering that they see around them, then this picture of Jesus is a picture that is comforting to know that there is a Jesus who is above all things. A Jesus who will, if we may use these words, vindicate his people. But for Christians who are, in a sense, underwhelmed by Jesus, they're disappointed by Jesus, and so are inclined to turn to sin, this very same picture is meant to call them to repent and turn back to Jesus. See, John, if we were to use the words, uh, he wounds those who are comfortable, and then he comforts those who are wounded. Now, as we turn to God's word this evening, let us turn to him in prayer. Our Father, we know and are certain that you love your church. We know that Jesus loves his church, and we know this because he was slain for his church. Not only for his church, but to overcome and to have victory over all the evil and suffering that fills our world. And Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that as your church, you would help us in every way possible to imitate the self-giving and self-sacrificial love of Jesus. And this we pray, amen. Africa is a rich but poor continent. Now, this is a phrase that many leaders have used to describe the state of our continent. And since you and I live in this beautiful continent of ours, we know that although this statement seems as if it is contradictory, it is actually true. It is a reflection and description of our continent. Africa is a rich but poor continent. Now, those who are English nerds call this kind of statement a paradox. A paradox is, as you would see on the notes, a statement that is seemingly contradictory but is nonetheless true. Here's another example I can give you. This one is a little bit silly, so just follow with me. Deep down... You are really shallow. I don't know if you heard anyone say that before. Now I can see uh, the mental wheels in some of your brains running right now because you're thinking of the person whom this might describe. A paradox. See, the Bible, when you come to it and study it, you will realize that the Bible more, more often than not describes the Christian and the Christian journey and even the character and nature of God in a manner that is paradoxical. Now this is what I mean. The Bible says the Christian is a new creation and still has the old nature in him. You'll hear Paul several times saying, although he has been set free of sin, you and I and him have become slaves of righteousness, freedom and slavery. At other times he says, for although I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all men. Seems paradoxical. But we know it's true. We know what Paul is saying there is he has been freed from sin. He has been freed to live for Jesus. And so he makes himself a slave to serve all people. The words of Jesus, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. There are so many passages like this in the scriptures that are paradoxical. Moreover, you will see that the description of God is also paradoxical. Uh, Martin, who is uh, uh, well, our, our pastor here at the church, is, has written a brilliant article on, on a blog post uh, here at our church. Now, I know that very statement itself sounds contradictory to call Martin a blogger. But he's got, he's got an article that he's written, a brilliant article, a number of them that I would encourage you to go, and, to go and read. Articles that he and others have written. Now this is what he says in one of the articles. Truth is paradoxical. It is strange. It is improbable. It is the opposite of what we expect. Truth is always stranger than fiction because we have made fiction to suit ourselves. The paradox at the heart of truth, the ultimate paradox, the absolute paradox, is Jesus Christ. He is both eternal and temporal. He is both infinite and finite. He is both visible and invisible. He is both the creator and creature. He is both spirit and flesh. In Jesus, we encounter the one who is fully God and the one who is fully man. We encounter the king who is a servant, the one who is a spirit, or the spirit who is a rock, the lion, who is a lamb. Jesus Christ, a paradox. In our passage this evening, John describes Jesus and the lives of the people whom Jesus has called to be part of his new community as paradoxical. Now we'll see that as we go through our passage this evening. And as you see on the notes before you, we have three points tonight. And the three points are, the first one is, The lion is a lamb. Our second point is suffering is overcoming. And our third point is hearing is blessing. So let's go to our first point. And for our first point, as you can see in the notes there, we'll focus on chapter 5, verse verse 5 and verse 6. The lion is a lamb. Now, this statement is a paradox. It seems strange to us. How is it that a lion can be a lamb? These two are totally different animals. They are totally unlike each other. See, a lion is powerful, ferocious. It roars. It is kingly. The lion is called the king of the jungle. And a lamb is a domestic animal, a farm animal that is small and weak and not intimidating at all. I'd be surprised if anyone is scared of a lamb. A lion is a predator. It is capable of subduing other animals and is rarely subdued itself, whereas a lamb is a prey. It is incapable of subduing other animals and it is at the mercy of other animals as well. See, people would carve images in history, images of a lion, and they would carve images of an ox, which is the strongest of the tamed animals. They'll carve an image of an eagle, which is the king of the air, and an image of a human to represent what a god would look like. That's what they would do because this is a picture of power. So if you go to Revelation chapter 4, which David took us through a while ago, you see that. that You you see these creatures creatures that people often worshipped as God, and we see these creatures worshipping before God. If people carved an image of a God, it was usually a lion, an ox, or an eagle, because it is a picture of strength. Rarely would you ever find anyone, if ever, carving an image of a lamb to worship a lamb. That idea is absurd. And yet John presents us tonight with a paradox that we have got to wrestle with. Let's look at chapter 5 again, chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Listen to what John says to us. So John has this vision, and he has a vision of a scroll. This scroll is completely sealed, we are told. It has seven seals. And this scroll has God's judgment plan, God's justice over all who have stood against him. But when John looks around, he realizes that there is no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so he weeps. And then one of the angels says to him, one of the elders rather, says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, And between the thrones... The throne of the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. Now both the terms that we see there, Lion of Judah and slain lamb, are used to describe Jesus. The phrase Lion of Judah is a hyperlink. I think most of us know what a hyperlink is, a link that sends you somewhere else. It's a hyperlink to Genesis, for, Genesis 39, where, where we're told about the Lion of Judah. Whereas the slain lamb is a hyperlink to Exodus 12, where we are told about the slain lamb. Now, the important thing to see about what John does here is the movement or the transition or transformation of images from a lion to a lamb. Look at what he does. John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. But notice how the lion has conquered. The lion has conquered through the sacrifice of the lamb. The lion has conquered through the sacrifice of the lamb. The conquering lion is the slain lamb. Now this is something that is important to see, how John actually keeps moving between these two images. images. You and I, when we think of a God who comes to show his power, a God who comes to bring justice, the kind of picture we expect is a God who comes in power like a lion. See, the Israelites expected that this is the kind of king Jesus would be, and they were shocked to realize Jesus coming as a lamb. And John in these two pictures wants us to see that. He actually does a very similar thing a little bit later in Revelation 7, which David will take us through. In Revelation 7, he talks of the 144,000, and if you've had anyone walk up to you and knock on your door, they prophet probably told you that that is the number of people who are going to heaven, right? However, John explains this differently. He gives us a census, a count of the people who are part of the military or the army of God. And this is from Numbers 1 and 2, where you see the army of God. You see people from the 12 tribes, 12,000 people from each tribe. And John paints to you this picture of a force, of a military army. And this is what John hears. But when John sees how God conquers the world, what he sees is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilingual people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The two pictures seem at odds to each other. You see one picture of power, and the other one looks like weakness. But the way that God shows his power is through this slain lamb. It is through this multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multilingual people, as I said, that David will take us through. See, the victory of the lion is brought through the self-sacrificial and self-giving love of the lamb. This is what we're meant to see here, that God's greatest display of power was at the cross. What looked like weakness, what looked like humiliation, is actually God's greatest display of power. See, the God of God's kingdom became a servant and a sacrifice by subjecting himself to death to gain victory over all evil and to rescue God's creation. This is the power of God. God's power is seen in Him becoming like us and then going to a cross to die for us, to rescue His people from the chaos that is within, their struggle with sin, and the chaos that is without. The brokenness that we see in our world. But notice as well. Notice that this slain lamb is not just standing. This slain lamb who's standing, meaning is alive, is a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now seven horns were often used to represent, or horns rather, were often used to represent authority. And when you hear seven horns, you're meant to think absolute or all authority. And so we see that this lamb has absolute authority. See, this lamb is a warrior who has gone into battle and has come out victorious. And the way that he has gotten his victory is by laying down his life. is by becoming a sacrifice, not only to defeat the evil in the world, but to rescue God's people from sin. But we're also told that this lamb has seven eyes, meaning that this lamb is all seeing. He sees everywhere. So we see his power and his authority. There's a commentator who, puts, uh, who makes us understand what verse 5 and 6 are saying together by saying this. The most powerful image, the lion, is transformed into an image of a lamb. The power of the lion imagery is not eliminated since the lamb hardly lacks any might. The lamb stands at the center of God's throne. The lamb stands at the center of God's throne, the most powerful place in the universe, and the lamb has seven horns. For many of us, it might seem like the cross is weakness, it might seem like the cross was not the best option for God to show his total display, his power over all evil. But John here makes us see that this was God's most brilliant plan. To come as a suffering servant king who achieves his victory over human evil and all evil by dying on a cross. Now you see this idea it's not an idea that is new to the Bible. It is not an idea that is, that is suddenly introduced to us here. But it is an idea that has been introduced as early as Genesis 3.15, where we are told how the, 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 the God will have a, a son who will crush the serpent. It's an idea that was introduced a lot earlier, but the way that he will crush the serpent is through suffering himself. It's as though you're watching, if I might say, an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I don't know if you guys know M. Knight Shyamalan. He was a brilliant director who is behind the movie The Sixth Sense. Or the other movies such as The Village, which is a brilliant movie. Or the trilogy of Unbreakable, uh, Split and Glass, which is Bruce Willis and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. I forgot the other actor. Now, all throughout the movie... All throughout the movie, you're convinced that you know what's going on. But when you get to the end, you realize that there's a plot twist that shows you something a little bit different. And the plot twist in the sixth sense is that Bruce Willis finally realizes that he is dead. In the village, the people realize finally that the creatures that were taking them were actually the elders in the village. And so when you now watch the movie from the beginning, you realize how from the beginning the author has been showing you that this is the idea that he's developing. And all throughout the scriptures, this is what we see. We see from the beginning of the scriptures that the idea or the way that God would conquer evil is through a self-sacrificial and self-giving love. It is by God going through suffering to achieve his victory. See the cross, Martin says in the very article that I mentioned, the cross and Christ is always the absolute and ultimate paradox. The lion is the lamb. The lion conquers through the death of the lamb, through the sacrifice of the lamb. Now this idea helps us to move on to our second point, which is also paradoxical in one sense. Suffering is overcoming. Now again, this is an idea that seems strange or unlikely to us, but let me suggest that if we have understood that the way that God conquers the world is by coming as a lamb, then this idea does not become foreign to us. See, the way that God has called his people, the new people that are part of his new community to live, is to fashion themselves behind this lion who is a lamb. It is to imitate or become a photostat of him. So, for us as Christians, for us as a church, suffering comes, suffering is overcoming. Now, I'll explain that idea a little bit more. Now, I want you to see how John, now going back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, mentions at the end of each of his letters, he mentions this very phrase He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then says these words To the one who conquers, I will grant. That's chapter 2, verse 7. Now, look at chapter 2, verse 11. Same phrase To the one who conquers, or the one who conquers, rather, will not be hurt. And then, chapter 2, verse 17, towards, or rather from verse 16 says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against you with the sword. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. And if you continue reading, you will notice that that very phrase is repeated all throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now the question that you and I should ask ourselves is, who is the one who conquers? And what does it mean to conquer or to overcome? See, the idea that most of us would have immediately, that the idea of conquering overcoming as a Christian means that we would have total power over everyone. But if we've understood what John talks about in Revelation 5 and 6, then it completely changes how we think about what conquering looks like here. See, John here, I believe, gives us an example of what a conqueror looks like. He gives us an example of one who has conquered in the church in Pergamum. Look at the church in Pergamum in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, from verse 13, we see that Jesus says, Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Antipas is someone who stood for Jesus. He stood, he was committed and faithful to Jesus to the very end, to the point of giving up his life. See, Antipas was committed not only to Jesus, but Jesus' mission to the point of giving up his life. If we want to see what the one who conquers looks like, Antipas is that very person. See, Antipas who imitates or is a photostat of the lion who is a lamb. This is what it looks like to conquer for us as Christians. And you see, the only way we can do that is by understanding that the lion who is a lamb has already conquered the world. And so even in our suffering, even in the toughest of times, even when things are difficult, you and I will know that nothing can shake us or move us from our commitment to Jesus and his mission. Because we know that the lion who is a lamb has conquered the world. And the way that he has conquered is through suffering. See, the word that the gospels often use to describe someone like this, to describe such a person, is a follower. A follower of Jesus. But I believe John here uses a term that is a little bit different, but that, that gives us the same kind of understanding. I believe John here uses the term, a kingdom of priests, to describe a people who are overcomers, to describe people who are followers of Jesus to the very end. In, in chapter 1, verse 50, verse 5, rather, John says this to us, to him who loved us and has freed us or has washed us of our sins and has made us a kingdom and priests. And in chapter 5, verse 10, the very same phrase is used, that Jesus, he has made us a kingdom and priests to our God. Now that right there is a hyperlink to Exodus 19, verse 6, where the phrase is used to describe the nation of Israel. God calls the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests. Now we've got to ask, what does it mean to call the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests? What does it mean to be a priest? A commentator that I was listening to by the name Gregory... um, uh, Bl says this, he, he explains what um, uh, the kingdom of priests, or what it means to be a kingdom of priests for Israel and the church in this way. He takes us back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, and he says in Genesis 1 and 2, what you see is, you see Adam and Eve acting as priests. Now, that is something that might be strange to us at first, at hearing that, but, but this is what he says. He says, that the job description that is given of Adam and Eve is to cultivate and to keep God's garden. That's their job description. And a little bit later in the scriptures, you realize that this very same phrase, or these two words, are used to describe the work of the priests in the temple. Their work is to guard and serve. And these words have the same root word. And we see here, he points to us, that Adam and Eve were the first priests who were called to cultivate and to keep God's garden. Now to cultivate and keep God's garden or to guard and serve God's world means to guard you guard God's world from anything that is unholy or anything that is unclean and you also serve the people of God but we also see in the idea of keeping that we preserve what is good in God's creation. And so we see here, he points to us, that the garden and the world is actually God's temple. And Israel, and even the church today, is called to cultivate, to improve, and to keep, to preserve God's creation. Now, I think the way that we can explain it uh, for the church today is using the two greats the two greats, the great commission. And the great commandment. The great commission is us introducing people to Jesus' self-giving love and calling them to live like him. Whereas the great commandment is us as the church, as individuals, loving others in a self-giving manner that imitates or is like in manner like Jesus loved us. So this is what the church is called to. This is how the church cultivates and keeps the temple God's world. We are called to hold up to the world the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. The Great Commission is our mission to take the gospel to the world, to introduce the the world to Jesus and his self-sacrificial love. Our, Our work is to defend the gospel. That's what the Great Commission is about. But the Great Commandment is us loving the world. And the way we love the world is not just in word, but it is in deeds. We love the world by serving the world, by caring for the world, by standing up for injustice, by standing up for wrong wherever we see it. See, all Christians, when we look at this passage, we see all Christians are called to live self-sacrificially by loving others or for others. See, we are the people of the lion who is a lamb, and we are called to be like him in every way. Now, let me ask this. What are you and I willing to endure? Well, what are we willing to suffer so that others would, would, would come to know the self giving love of Jesus or so that we would show them the self giving love of Jesus through our actions? What are we willing to endure as Christians? Are we willing to endure ridicule amongst friends and family who think perhaps that you're too kind? Who look at the way that you love others and think it is a little bit strange that you do that? Are we willing to be ridiculed for the fact that we will stand for what is right, no matter what it takes? Are we we willing to forsake a better paying job, a better home, and a better car, if it would mean that you and I can get to tell others about this self-giving love of Jesus or that we would get to imitate this love to them. Are we willing to stand for injustice or stand against, rather, injustice and the mistreatment of others if it mean, even if it means that you'll be marginalized at work? You'll be marginalized among friends. You might be ignored for promotions. You might not be considered for a number of things because you've decided to stand for what is right. Are we willing to not tolerate unforgiveness and resentment in the church or among God's people who find ways to justify that? Are we willing to not tolerate the lack of humility to ask for forgiveness when someone has wronged another person? Because we know that that distorts the gospel and distorts the mission of Jesus. What are we willing to endure for the sake of the gospel? Say, so if there's anything you can accuse these churches that Jesus writes to here, is that they were not a kingdom of priests. They did not seek to cultivate and keep the world. They did not hold out. Well, the great commission and the great commandment. Now we know Jesus has commanded them, commanded them rather in a number of places, but one of the things that is very clear when it comes back to show them what he holds against them. It is this very thing that they have not held out the gospel and they've not loved those around them. And these are the very things that you and I have got to ask ourselves. Now, this is not to brag or to say that as a church, we have gotten this completely right. But if you were to look at our church, I think you'd be convinced that these are the kind of things that you see. That you see in our church people who are willing to self-sacrificially hold out the gospel and love and care for the world around them. I think most of us would attest to this, to being true, that there's a commitment to defend the gospel and share the gospel in our church. You see it in our ministries, in just how passionate and committed we are to stand for this gospel and share the gospel with others. And you see it also in how committed our church is to plant churches, not simply to make disciples or make disciples, but to plant churches and to reach out to others. You see that we are a church who is committed to be a kingdom of priests, to cultivate our world, to keep in our world what is good, to be the salt and light in our world. And I, I'll tell you this, you can see a commitment to love and care for our world as well. And you see it in our various ministries as well, mission ministries, ministries that show love and, 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 and compassion to our city. You see it in ministries such as the Love Trust, where we've started, we've started ECDs and schools. And where we have shown how we are keeping what is God, what is good in God's creation, how we're preserving education and giving kids education that is better. You see it in our care and crisis center that was announced this morning. How as a church we are passionate about caring and looking after the needs of those who are marginalized in our community. Now, could we, as a church, do it better? Definitely, we can. As a church, we could continue to hold out this gospel, and we we could continue to love those around us in a self-sacrificial and self-giving manner. And if you are part of our church, and in any way feel that this is not something that has characterized you, what you would see in reading these passages, that Jesus actually reproves, or rather rebukes these churches out of love. See, Jesus wants these churches to actually imitate his character of a lion who is a lamb. He wants them to also to show self-sacrificial and self-giving love. And so he calls them to repent. He gives them an opportunity to see who he is. And having gazed at who he is, to once again to live in the way that he calls them to. And so moving to our third point. As a church, we have got to see... That the way we overcome is through suffering. The way we stand out to the world as being those who have trusted in Jesus is by self-sacrificially loving others. This is what overcoming in the Christian faith looks like. It is not the prosperity gospel. It is not the health and wealth gospel. No, rather it is self-sacrificially laying down our lives for others so that they will come to know Jesus and so that they will see his love through us. Now, a third point, as well as we close off, seems paradoxical. Hearing is blessing. How is hearing a blessing to us? Chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. See, the way that we are blessed is by hearing these words. And if we know that these are not the characters that mark out our lives, then we know the way to hear and be blessed by this book is by repenting, as Jesus calls us to. And yet again, turn our eyes to him who is not only sovereign over all things, but him who is the lion and the lamb and seek to live in the way that he calls us to. But as Christians, if we are already living in this way, then you would notice that Jesus over, over and again calls us to hold fast to what we have had. He calls us to continue standing for the gospel. He, continue, he calls us to, to, to continue holding out love to our world. And so brothers and sisters, the way to overcome... The way to become the conqueror, the conqueror who receives the promises that Jesus makes or makes in these passages. Now you'll notice we haven't spent time looking at those. We'll look at them as we go through Revelation because they're much more unfolded when we get to Revelation 21 and 22. But brothers and sisters, the way we conquer, the way we become priests, the way we cultivate and keep our world and care for our world, Is by holding out the gospel and by holding out Jesus' love. It's by showing them this love, by showing it in our actions. And in this coming week, I call you to consider the many ways in which you can do this. And consider the many ways that you'll be willing to endure all suffering so that others would come to know the love of Jesus and see it through your very actions as well.